0: To Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we are going to pay attention to and try to explain Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 22. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as had not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So Matthew 24 is a long answer to a question that has been asked by the disciples. This sermon that is informing both the disciples and us about the timeline of events leading up to the end of the age, leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, comes immediately after, obviously, Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus had denounced the Pharisees. Condemned them for their refusal to listen, to heed, to hear the words of the Lord spoken through a prophet to them once again. However, this was not just any prophet. This is God come to us in the flesh. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who stands before them, speaking the word of God to them, calling them to repentance and faith. And like every generation of Israel before this one, they too refused. They too rebelled. They too remained stiff necked and disobedient. And so, after warning the Pharisees, Jesus left the temple. On this day, he walked out of the temple with his disciples, and as they were walking out of the temple to make their way to the mountain just on the other side, his disciples were marveling at the buildings. The temple in Jerusalem at this time was a magnificent structure. It was, for all intents and purposes, an architectural wonder, stunning and beautiful to everyone who looked at it. Many in history actually speak about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at this time as being one of, if not the grandest and most stunning and visually arresting of all temples in the known world at the time. In fact, it might very well have been the most beautiful building in the world at that time. And so as they walked around the temple, the disciples pointed out to Jesus all of the different buildings in the temple complex. You see that in chapter 24, verse 1. No doubt these men, too, were awed by the sight of the imposing splendor. And Jesus, he doesn't go along with their awe-filled pointing out. In fact, look what he says in chapter 24, verse 2. You see all of these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, a day is coming... And it will arrive soon in the days of this generation, said Jesus in chapter 24, verse 34. When this temple, as monumental and spectacular as it is, along with this city and many of its inhabitants, will be destroyed so thoroughly that even these, even these enormous, even these humongous, even these gigantic stones that make up this supremely impressive temple complex, they will be thrown down so completely that not one of them will remain on top of another. And as Jesus spoke this prophetic word to the 12, no doubt they were jarred, no doubt they were stunned by what they just heard. But at the same time, they were hopeful and expectant, because as we've been learning over the last couple of weeks, they understood that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city must come to pass for the events of the last day to be ushered in, for the end of the age to arrive. You see the expectation of the average Jew in Christ's day was that should the temple be devastated, should Jerusalem be raised to the ground, these events signaled the close at hand oncoming immediate end of the age. The time when the Lord, the God of Israel, will take it upon himself to fulfill all outstanding Old Testament promises to the nation in the form of a Jerusalem re established, a temple rebuilt, the Messianic king descending from David's line, ruling from his throne in the city from the temple. Over not just Jerusalem proper, but over all the nations of the earth, ruling those who will not submit to him willingly with a rod of iron as he rules globally. This is what the Israelites of this day expected. And so as the disciples hear Jesus speak about the temple being destroyed, their minds immediately race to the next logical question in chapter 24, verse 3. Tell us, when When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, when will it come to pass that these stones and this city is thrown down? And how soon after will you return to rebuild the temple and reestablish the Davidic kingdom? The time when you rule over a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity and rejoicing for us, the nation of Israel and the wider world. When, Jesus, when is this going to happen? The disciples, see, they expected the immediate fulfillment of such prophetic words as those found in Isaiah chapter 2. Listen to Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth his law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So you can see from texts like this just what the disciples were expecting. When the temple falls, the prophetic words of the Lord by the mouths of his prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Micah, will soon come to pass. One problem for for them, however, is that this will not be the case. And so Jesus answered their question about when these things will be and what will be the sign of the end of the age, what will be the sign of Christ's return by exhorting them not to, to relax and be comfortable, just know that Jesus is immediately returning. No, instead, look at what he says in chapter 24, verse four. See to it that no one leads you astray. That's his answer, his initial answer to their question. Do not let your guard down, do not relax, do not breathe out a sigh of relief and let yourself be misled as a result because far from Christ's immediate return, The temple's destruction will only signal the beginning of a prolonged season wherein the Lord sets aside his plan for Israel for a time to initiate or inaugurate a church age, an interval where he will call the Gentiles to salvation. And when this season has concluded, he will pick up where he left off with Israel." As the Apostle Paul put it, speaking to proud Gentiles who assume that they somehow supplanted Israel in God's plan, or they are the new Israel in God's plan, or they are somehow greater than Israel in God's plan, he said this in Romans chapter 11. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, the wild olive tree is us. The cultivated olive tree is Israel. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, meaning lest you be proud, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, meaning ethnic Israel, spiritual Israel. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is a way of saying Israel. And in this way, my covenant with them, meaning Israel, will be when I take away their sin. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So you see, in the end, the Lord will succeed in his plan to save a remnant from ethnic Israel along with Gentiles. And in this way, he will save all Israel, ethnic and spiritual. All who turn to Christ in faith, whether you're Gentile or Jew, will be a part of this all Israel. So during this season of Israel's partial hardening, during the time that we find ourselves in now, the church has been called, the church has been formed, the church has been tasked with going into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, as the disciples ask this question, he warns them to temper their expectations. Because instead of immediately returning to fulfill the prophetic words of Isaiah and Micah, which will come to pass in the future, there is going to be a season, a prolonged season, where the Lord, in his grace and in his mercy and in his compassion, calls to himself Gentiles from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every language. And during this season when the Lord is, has his church on the earth and we are out there proclaiming and following what our mission is to go and make disciples, this season, he, Jesus says in verses 4 on to verse 14, this season will be characterized by numerous false Christs, pretenders who claim to be Messiah or some prophet speaking for God and they will lead many astray. There will be wars. There are wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. There will be natural disasters that rock different geographic locations throughout the earth. And those who love Christ will be hated by all for their courageous, their unshakable, their indomitable commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. During these days, And you see it, right? We all see it. Many false prophets will rise up. They'll rise up from within the church. They'll rise up from outside the church. They'll deceive and they'll mislead the multitudes. And lawlessness will continue to increase. And the love of many will grow cold. Jesus warned the disciples, be awake, be ready for these things. Because at this moment, the disciples were unprepared for them. All of these realities ran contrary to their lifelong expectation. If temple is raised, Messiah comes back immediately, and we are ushered in to our messianic kingdom. And if you notice, the first thing Jesus said is, there will be false Christs, as if to say, when the temple is raised, don't just believe the first guy that comes and says, I'm Jesus, and I'm here to fix everything. Don't be deceived. So Jesus exhorted them in 24, verse 13, endure. During this season, you, disciples, endure. During this season, you, saints in the Lord, endure, because the one who endures to the end will be saved. Continue proclaiming the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and do this throughout the entire world, because when that message has penetrated the entire world as a testimony to all nations, then, said Jesus in verse 14, then the end will come. Then you will see the end of the church age. Then you will see that interval, like we learned last week, between the 69th week and the 70th week in Daniel. Daniel. Then we will see this come to a close. And the Lord will take his church out of the world because the great tribulation spoken of in verse 21 that is to come upon the world is a time of wrath. And as the Lord pours out from heaven his just, righteous, and holy fury against unrepentant, rebellious, wicked sinners upon earth, both Jew and Gentile. See, the Apostle Paul made this clear enough in his first letter to the Thessalonian church. After he encouraged them with the truth of our being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, he encourages them and he encourages us further in chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Here we read Paul saying, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And listen to this. For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. You see, Paul had just spoken about those being awake and asleep, alive and dead, about both of them who love the Lord going to be with the Lord in the clouds. And he reiterated the why. Why would they go up to be with the Lord in the clouds? Because you aren't destined for wrath. Because for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has taken upon himself the full weight, drank the cup of God's wrath right down to the dregs for the sins of those who believe in his name. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you have called out to Him for salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ has borne the entirety of the wrath of God due against you on Himself. There is no double jeopardy for your sin. God does not, He will not, pour out His wrath upon His children. He will discipline us, yes, for our good, but wrath, wrath is not your reality any longer. You no longer face any of God's wrath anymore because there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Wrath has been taken. It is not your future, provided you love, serve, and worship Jesus Christ. For this reason, the Lord will indeed take his church out of the world before resuming his plan for Israel. Now, if you're a fan of the Left Behind series and all of those rapture fiction type of novels, I don't think it's going to happen like that at all. That doesn't really follow the timeline and the look of Scripture. So let's just set all of those aside and not have that in our mind as we're considering these things. Just know this, the Lord will take us to be with Him. What that looks like, I don't know. I, like I said last week, I hope it's all of us going up in flaming chariots. That would be awesome. And in his, after we are taken up and he resumes his plan for Israel, he will dispense his righteous, holy anger and wrath upon them who are left behind, no pun intended, along with this world for their unrepentant, stubborn refusal to turn and be saved. So, this section of Matthew speaks about the great tribulation. And the great tribulation is not something that you as a believer will have to do to endure. For you, the wrath of God has been turned aside by the wonderful work of Jesus Christ on your behalf as he lived a perfect life, as he died a wrath-bearing, sin-atoning death in your place as a substitute, as he rose from the dead on the third day and ascended back to the right hand of God the Father and now intercedes for you, represents you too, God in the heavenly places." But those who will be on earth when the great tribulation begins will be those who have not turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And can I just say, it is an absolutely foolish decision to refuse Christ. It is the most foolish decision that any human being can make. If you are refusing Jesus Christ right now, the Bible says you are an absolute fool given all that you might get caught up in temporally during the Great Tribulation, should it start during our lifetime, and even worse, given where you will spend your eternal future, should you die in your unforgiven state, the absolute most foolish decision any human being can make is to say, Jesus, I just don't want anything to do with you. These words of warning and woe while informative for us as believers, ought to terrify and torment you if you are an unbeliever. As you think about what you might face, the prospect ought to make you sweat profusely, to toss and turn in your beds at night in anxiety, worry, and fear, while you, Christian knowing that Christ has borne it all for you. You put your head down on your pillow. You praise the Lord. You thank your Father in heaven. You exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. You praise the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who seals you, is the guarantee of your inheritance, and you fall asleep in the arms of your Savior. And as Jesus continues in verse 15, having just revealed that which will initiate the end of the age, after the gospel, look at it in verse 15, after the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, then the end will come. He now calls their attention to the future tribulations that will come when the times of the Gentiles conclude and the Lord resumes his plan to dispense his justice and wrath upon unrepentant Israel and to save the elect remnant from his chosen nation during these times. So he begins in verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Meaning, there will come a time when, inferred by the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when the temple in Jerusalem will somehow, some way, be rebuilt it will be reestablished and after that time there will come somebody the apostle paul calls in second thessalonians the man of lawlessness we read that in second thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 4 where it says this this man of lawlessness who will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of god proclaiming himself to be god So this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, this abomination of desolation, all of those terms can be used interchangeably to describe this particular figure, will one day rise up, according to Paul, to A, oppose and exalt himself against every so-called god or object of worship. That's what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3. Meaning, this, this person will claim preeminence and supremacy over He will demand higher rank and status then and become rival to any and all religious systems and practices throughout the world. Most especially, however, this man of lawlessness will attack and will slay those who turn to Christ in faith during his days." This man of lawlessness will chiefly aim at exterminating the truth of the Lord, the truth of the God of Israel, as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this will be seen, as this figure will be, according to Paul, take his seat in the temple of God. Notice, it's not in Mecca, it's not in India, it's not in Rome, it's in the temple in Jerusalem. And in so doing, the man of lawlessness will take his seat, according to Paul, That phrase means he will install himself, he will appoint himself, he will authorize himself as the supreme to the point that he will see, thirdly, proclaim himself to be God, according to the Apostle Paul. That word for proclaim there actually speaks to attesting himself, displaying himself, exhibiting himself by way of miracles and signs with wonder and power. See, this man of lawlessness isn't simply going to claim his seat in the temple, but he will deceive the nations into hailing him as he takes the seat. They will clamor for him to take this seat as he works powerful and convincing signs that cause the earth to believe his claims. And as he takes his seat, his rule will eventually extend throughout all of the earth as we read in Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 to 8. Listen to this. It meaning the beast or the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell in the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. As you can see, during these days, there will be. The church is gone. There will be those who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. We don't know exactly how that happens. Maybe it's some tracts that you left behind. Maybe it's the Bibles in your bedroom. So just always leave them out, just in case. For them, as they lived through these days, John heard these words of exhortation in Revelation 13.10. If anyone, meaning during these days is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, slain with the, uh, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So during this time, the power exerted by Antichrist during those days will be such that he'll control almost every aspect of people's lives. People won't be able to buy, they won't be able to sell as the, unless... They have his permission, and the way they gain permission is by taking on his mark. You've all heard of it, the mark of the beast. And they'll do that because they believe in him, because of the wonders that he performs. Revelation 13, 13, and 14 reveals them. It, the beast, the man of lawlessness, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people... And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. So there's an image that will be set up and the peoples will be commanded to worship the image. And for all who refuse to do so, all who refuse to accept the Antichrist's claim to deity, for those who will not bow down to the image that is set up in the temple, these will be slain. You see, the miracle working power of this Antichrist will be so convincing, so supernatural, so public, that it, if it were possible, even the elect, those chosen by the Lord himself would be led astray, as we read in Matthew 24:24. 24, 24. So, Jesus said, when you see this man of lawlessness, this abomination of desolation, when you see this man seating himself in the holy place and his image standing in the holy place, when you see this man asserting his right to be exalted over all so-called gods, attesting to his claim with powerful signs and wonders when you see the nation according to Daniel 27 believe in him and enter into a covenant with him for seven years according to Daniel 9:27, where we read this he the man of lawlessness shall make a strong covenant with the many Israel for one week meaning a week of years one set of seven years When you see this figure aid Israel in the rebuilding and protection of the temple and help them to worship in Jerusalem for a time, verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When the seven-year covenant, according to Daniel 9.27, is broken by this man of lawlessness after three and a half years. We also read that in Daniel 9.27. For half the week... He, the abomination of desolation, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, meaning he'll break the deal he makes with them, halfway through it. When you see that, Jesus said, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. In other words, the afflictions and the troubles and the hardships that are soon to arrive as a result of Antichrist's rule, along with the judgments of the Lord that are about to fall upon the earth, necessitate a quick escape from the city. Flee to the mountains, run for cover. Jesus, while warning those who are in the city of Jerusalem during this time to bolt from the city, also warns anyone alive on the earth at this time to run to themselves escape to the mountains, to hide somewhere, anywhere, leave behind anything and everything and move swiftly to see if you can, be, you can somehow be shielded, if possible, from what is about to happen. And he says, And pray that you won't be pregnant or nursing in those days. Meaning, pray that there will be nothing that slows you down in your escape. Pray that it won't happen in winter, during the season when it's hardest to travel because there's ice maybe on the ground, there's freezing temperatures, there's rains, there's flash floods that might trap you in the city. Pray that it won't be on the Sabbath So that the pharisaical leaders who are in league with the man of lawlessness won't attempt to stop you, to chastise you, or even to stone you because you're breaking their Sabbath laws by traveling too far on the Sabbath. Whatever the case, do your best to flee and do so immediately. Why? Why is Jesus so urgent about this fleeing when when you start to see these signs come to pass? Look at 21 verses 21 and 22 again. For there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is called the great tribulation. The second half of the 70th week spoken about by Daniel. The 42 months or the three and a half years of the beast's authority as spoken of in Revelation thirteen five. This time will commence, and this time will be unlike anything the world has ever experienced up to that point. This tribulation period will rock the entire world for three and a half years as the Lord's wrath is poured out against unrepentant Israel, and along with them, unrepentant sinners throughout the whole world. During this time, the wrath of God is given vent And it will be limited to a a three-and-a-half-year period because the Lord knows if it were extended any longer, not one single human being would survive. Not one. But for the sake of his elect, the Lord will cut short those days, meaning they will be limited to the defined period because the Lord's intention is not and has it never been to destroy every human being on earth. Now, There are some who will read this and claim that these words of Jesus were fulfilled in AD 70 when the the Romans came in and destroyed the temple and upwards of one million Jews were destroyed by the Roman army. Now, that indeed was a, a trial or a tribulation that had not been seen up to that point in the world. But the text also goes on to say with a little phrase from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be." Meaning, never will be again. So, you see the problem? Have the Jewish peoples experienced tribulation on a greater scale since the the days of A.D. 70, when one million were slaughtered by the Romans? Of course. During the course of World War II, over six million ethnic Jews were systematically tortured and exterminated by wicked, evil, and heinous men in Nazi Germany, not to mention those who were killed by other Axis nations as well. Recent history, this is less than a century ago, reveals with utter clarity that the greater tribulation than that of 8070, the great tribulation of verse 21 is still to come, because whatever it is, it'll be unlike anything the world has ever experienced. The Lord, speaking by the mouth of Zechariah the prophet, declares about these times, about this great tribulation. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, he says this, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. See, during the days of this tribulation, the Lord prophesied or spoke that two-thirds of Israel will perish. One-third will remain. And what will the Lord do with that one-third who remains? He says in the very next verse, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So what will this catastrophic period of tribulation over this three and a half years look like? For that, we are going to flip to Revelation chapter 6. So if you flip there, because we're going to spend the majority of our time, our last time in these texts. Revelation chapter 6 to 16 describes this period of time. And as we read them, it becomes quite obvious that our world has not yet experienced the tribulation described therein. In Revelation chapter Revelation chapter six to sixteen, a series of, we see a series of seven seals opened, seven trumpets blown, and seven bowls poured. They are all described, all of which picture the devastation that will come upon the earth during this three and a half year period as the Lord's wrath is unleashed upon the earth. So we're going to walk through all of them, and we'll do a quick little uh, explanation as we go. The first, as Revelation 6 reports, there will be a series of six seals opened. And they begin in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The first seal opened speaks to the arrival of the man of lawlessness who comes out conquering and to conquer the nations of the earth for a time as we've already described." And the four living creatures that say, come, are those who are spoken of back in Revelation 4. They stand around the throne of God, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the first seal opened, the Antichrist comes. The second seal is opened in verses 3 and 4. When he, that's the Lamb, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the second seal speaks to the increase in war, the increase in murder that will take place among humanity in those days as the restraining mercies of God, as his spirit and as his people are taken from the earth. Never underestimate the impact that you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have upon this earth. It may look like everything's hopeless, but if you're not here with your salt and your light, things would be much, much worse, as we will see. The third seal is described in chapters or verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "'Come!' And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This is a fancy way of saying that this horseman will bring with him a global famine unlike anything that has not been seen in earth's history. The fourth seal in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living creature say, "'Come!' and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth.'" So you see, this fourth seal open speaks to a massive number of casualties and death, a quarter of the earth's population. And death is given permission to kill a quarter of the earth's population by a variety of means, by famine, by plague, by sickness, by the sword, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And you see, these four seals, pictured as four horsemen, this is where we get the concept of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you've ever heard that phrase. It comes from this text. The fifth seal is in chapter nine, or verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wait until the measure is filled to the full. See, the fifth seal speaks to the death and the cries of the martyrs who are killed and who live and die during those days. (coughs) They cry out for vengeance upon those who killed them. And avenge their death, the Lord will, when the number of the elect saints have been completed, when they've all been martyred for their faith. The sixth seal is described in verses 12 to 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This sixth sixth seal speaks to an earthquake, earthquakes of such proportions that the people of earth feel it and understand this is God's doing. You see that in the next verses. Look at this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb, or face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So after this sixth seal, the people recognize... That this is the Lord's doing, and he pauses, the Lord pauses his outpouring here, as he seals 144,000 Israelites, the one-third remaining, commissioning them to be his witnesses. And we are given a glimpse in chapter 7, verse 9 also, about the number of people who will come to faith during this tribulation time, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And then, the Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, opens the seventh seal. And this text has always given me chills. I can't explain why. Because think about it. The saints are crying out. The angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. Lightning and thunder is cracking and peeling around the throne of God. And the Lamb opens the seventh seal. And there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Just imagine all of that noise halted for 30 minutes. The seventh seal is opened in silence. Then I saw the seven angels, verse 2, who stood before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So the seventh seal kicks off the sounding of the seven trumpets. And as we read in chapters 8 and 9, The first trumpet is described in chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This is just the first trumpet. And a third of the earth is burned up at the first trumpet. The second trumpet in verse 8. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Meaning now a third of all life in the sea is decimated by this, the second trumpet. Then the third trumpet sounds in verse 10. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Wormwood is the word for bitter. So one third of the water, the drinkable water on earth, is made bitter, and as a result, even more people on earth die. And then the fourth trumpet comes in verse 12. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So the celestial bodies that provide light to the earth are struck, and the earth's light is severely affected. And as the trumpets are being blown, John says in verse 13 of chapter 8, he heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe! To those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the angels are about to blow. In other words, this triple repetition of woe indicates that the peoples of the earth haven't seen anything yet. And then the fifth trumpet is blown, described in Revelation 9, 1 to 11, but we're going to start in verse 5. As this trumpet is blown, locusts are allowed to torment, locusts are demons, those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, meaning the 144,000, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone, and in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. See, the wicked of the earth will be tormented to such a degree that they'll try to end their own lives, but the Lord will not allow them to do so. They must endure the torment, which is a picture of what is to come eternally, should they continue, should we continue in our unrepentance. Then we'll blow the sixth trumpet. In verse 14, a voice said, Release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And these angels, these angels come out and they kill a third of humanity by plague. By the fire and smoke of sulfur coming out of their mouths. And did you notice it? These angels are prepared for this right now. They are prepared for that hour, for that day, for that month. And after all of this, after all this death, destruction, plagues, and wrath, as the wrath of God is being poured out people seeking death and not finding it, after so much affliction and distress, after people have recognized and understood that what has befallen them has come from the Lord, you'd think, right? You'd think that maybe people might repent of their sin and say, enough with this, I don't want this anymore, and they might turn to the Lord. But no, shockingly, humanity is revealed in the book of Revelation to be far more stubborn, to be far more rebellious than we could ever imagine. Look at verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Isn't that unreal? As it was for the Egyptians during the times of the ten plagues on their country, as it was for Israel during their existence as a nation in the Old Testament, as it is for humanity in our own day, so will it continue on in the days of the tribulation that mankind simply refuses to repent of their evil ways and turn to the Lord in faith and trust. But even so, to their great sorrow... But also to our great joy, the seventh trumpet blows in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then later, finally, a series of seven. We'll try to motor through these quickly. A series of seven bowls are poured out on the earth, more severe than anything as of yet. You heard in the trumpets, one-third, 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 one-third. Now listen to the numbers that are brought up in the bowls. As people are given time to repent and they don't repent, things get worse and worse and worse. Chapter 16, verse 1, John heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. See, the sores don't come upon those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, who refuse to worship the Antichrist, but in similar manner to the plagues on Egypt that didn't affect the Israelites but only the Egyptians, so the bowls will fall on the wicked rebels who still refuse in that day to repent and instead remain committed to serving and worshiping the abomination of desolation. And so the second angel in verse 3 poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Not one third, this time it's everything. The massive food source for humanity is wiped out. And the third angel follows suit in verse 4. He poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. See, the source and the fountains of water for the earth are now turned to blood, which is the judgment, which is the vengeance that the saints that have been martyred have been crying out for. And the angel of the Lord, as he does it, he celebrates as he does it, praising God for this just judgment, which then leads to the fourth bowl in verse 8. As the angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, they were scorched by the fierce heat. And listen, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. For this reason, the fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Do you see that refrain? They did not repent. They did not repent. And this continuing refusal to repent even in the face of such pain and affliction leads to the sixth angel in verse 12 pouring out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So this lack of repentance common to mankind will actually be exploited as the angel dries up the roads so that the armies from the east who gather themselves to make war against Jerusalem, they can get to their destination easily. But the creation of this pathway for the easy traveling of these armies is ultimately the pathway to their own destruction. The beast and his cohorts do not take this lying down, however. In verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And in verse 16, you see they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The Lord makes this collection of saints easy as he dries up the Euphrates. And as they did that, the seventh angel in verse 17 pours out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Now, what happens next? That'll come next week. But for now, the events of Revelation 6, verse 16 are what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. These are the events that will take place during the Great Tribulation, events that are... we've never seen since the beginning of the world, and we'll never see again. These are the days that had they been any longer than the time frame set by the Lord would have destroyed every single human being on earth. These are the days that are still to come that the Lord will keep short for the sake of the elect who are on earth. If you would escape this tribulation... If you would be with the Lord, praising him and exalting him in the heavenly realms rather than on the earth, enduring these afflictions that will come upon the earth, because, and here's the truth, who knows, who knows, these days might very well begin in your lifetime. We don't know. No man knows the time or the date, but they might very well begin in your lifetime. They might not, but they might The Lord in his mercy, compassion, and grace has given you this time, this moment, this second to hear his call to you, turn from your sin, believe in his name, and you will be saved. But if you would refuse, and the days of tribulation do in fact commence during our lifetime, all I can say is this, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. And for you who love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, as you consider the judgments that the Lord will pour out upon the earth, I ask and pray that you would have the same attitude as the angel pouring out the third bowl. In closing, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. It is what they deserve. Father, we thank you and praise you for warning us. We thank you that you don't hide information from us. We thank you that you don't keep things from us that are vital to our faith, vital to comforting us in our faith, vital to warning us to flee from what is about to happen should we not believe in Jesus. I pray that this morning, as we took a little bit of a look at the future about what awaits the world, That you would be comforting those who love you, comforting those who believe in you, helping them to realize that there truly is no condemnation for those who are found in you. And for those who are not saved this morning, we don't want to be like places that say things like, just be comfortable here or this isn't your grandma's church, or any of those types of things. No, Lord, we pray that you would be making them tremble in their seats at this moment. There will be no peace, no rest, until they turn to you in faith and trust, to the salvation of their souls. And we ask this in Christ's precious, wonderful, and holy name. Amen.